Well, good morning. Uh, let me add my welcome to that of Scott. As Scott says, my name's Tim, and I'm one of the members here, and it's my joy to follow on from Jane reading that passage, uh, to look at this uh, passage in James before us. So if you have a Bible, please do keep it open. Um, I wonder if for you, daily life as a Christian can sometimes feel a long way away from when Jesus was here on earth, and even when Jesus ascended up to heaven, it feels like very many years ago. And perhaps in our more honest moments, we might even admit that the idea of him coming back in the future and a future judgment, well, well, that can feel even more remote to us as we try to get on with our lives in 2022. And in fact, many of us are sort of comfortable talking about what God has done through Christ in the faraway past. We preach it, we sing it, we can discuss it. Praise God, it is central to our Christian faith. And similarly, many of us are pretty comfortable about talking about what God will do through Christ in the future. Certainly in sort of key broad strokes, he will come again, he will judge, he will set up a new heaven and a new earth. But often we can be left with a a gap, the time in between, the now, and we ask the question, what is God doing now? On Monday morning, when there's another week of stress and pressures and demands, on Tuesday evening, when it feels like you think it should be Thursday evening, what is God doing through Jesus Christ now? And how do I fit in? Because sometimes it all feels very distant. I find the the lyrics of the Christian songwriters Jars of Clay put words to this question so often for me. In the song they sing, there's something in my veins, but I can't seem to make it work. I wonder if you ever feel like that, stuck in this gap. What should it be now? And sometimes other gospel or other Christian writers have called that the gospel gap. This gap between the nuts and bolts of our daily, day-to-day life and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. We can fall into having a gap. And it's into that space that I think James has focused his letter to close that gap down, to connect every aspect of our daily lives with what we profess in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've seen that, haven't we, over the last four weeks, that James, the experienced and and passionate pastor teacher, has penned this letter because he's concerned about an inconsistency, a gap, if you like, that he can see in the first generation of Christians that he was responsible for. They they, they had what what we might call a a two-facedness in them, what he calls a double-mindedness, they, they, they were trying to live both for the world and also in line with the values of the world. They were flip-flopping, trying to have a foot in both camps. There was a gap. And just as it's the final week, we can briefly recap what we've seen. He showed us in chapter one that, that God's ambition for us is to, to bring that together, to, to develop in us a, a wholeheartedness, a singleness, an undivided faith and integrity And even the very pressures of life in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father will help us become more complete. But we saw that our double-mindedness, it it, it means that we, we try to merely just listen to the word and not do it. 
And James has that famous analogy, doesn't he? That we're, we're like, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and then we go away and we forget what we look like. It's like we're trying to be two different people. And we saw in, in chapter two when, when Alex taught that to us, how quickly we, we, we sort of flip-flop between, on the one hand, holding the faith of Jesus Christ, the one who embodied self-sacrifice and humility, but yet the way we treat other people is just in line with the values of this world. And Jane rem- reminded us that James points out that is incompatible with true faith, true faith, which is loyalty to God, whatever the cost. And then finally, last week, we saw in chapter three that our, our speech, our tongue, how we talk so often reveals our heart. And the same tongue that can sit and sing or stand and sing blessings on a Sunday can do damage and cause hurt to other people merely a few hours later. And by last Sunday evening, we probably felt like we'd been punched, punched in the gut a few times by James. But we got to that climactic hinge in chapter four where he says, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. To root out this gap, this flip-flopping nature, James calls us to humble ourselves before God. To come with open hands, open hearts. Admit that we have compromised God's values for money, status, power. We've, we've not chosen not to live by his wisdom, but, but come humbly, hungry, longing to receive his grace with hearts opened to his good purpose to develop in us a unity, a wholeheartedness, an integrity. You see, James knows it takes a few shakes, it takes a few circumstances and to get the, the sound doctrine that we might have in our minds down into our hearts and into our attitudes. And until that happens, we will remain as confused and just as worldly and as selfish as everyone around us. So having brought us that far, to, to that point, our passage this morning that we've read, James now wants to identify a, a danger, a threat that might prevent that process from taking root in our lives that process of humbling ourselves before the Lord. And so we have in the two paragraphs that we've read a dual warning this morning, two paragraphs, two warnings. Each one introduced, you can see, with the little phrase, come now. And the big idea that runs through both these paragraphs, the warning that James has given us this morning, the threat that will hold us back from godly humility is a warning against arrogance. And we'll see firstly in chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, he warns against a godly arrogance in the form of a boastful self-reliance. Boastful self-reliance. And then secondly in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, he warns against a godly arrogance that comes in the form of dangerous self-indulgence. And perhaps for us this morning, the first one might seem a little bit more subtle. It certainly is more subtle. In that paragraph, he seems to be directing his comments towards Christians inside the church, the the church family. And then in the second, he turns and directs his comments and warning to the unbelievers outside the church family. But at their core, it's this same root that James wants to warn us about this morning, a godless arrogance. So firstly, let's look at 
13 to 18. A warning against godless arrogance that's shown in boastful self-reliance. Come now. Nowadays, nowadays, James might have said, listen up. And he specifically addresses a, a, a merchant sort of business group of people, you who say, and then we hear their, their sort of 12-month business plan. Unlike nowadays, salesmen weren't 10 a penny back then. And so these folk had probably sufficient wealth to, to move to such and such a town and set up a business and trade. They were individuals, we would say, that were in the, the comfortable middle class. This reminded me of uh, something I often laugh at, which was a satirical social media account that was set up a few years ago called Heard in Waitrose. So it would tweet out things like, recently heard in Waitrose, darling, do we have enough Parmesan for both houses? Or a six-year-old who says, mummy, does Lego have a tea like Merlot? It's the same sort of vibe. You who say, while sipping your flat white and eating your smashed avocado on sourdough toast, here's my business plan, here's what I'm going to accomplish. And James isn't specific about the details. He's using them as a representative example. But what we should notice is the sheer amount of assurance that we can hear as we hear them speak. The self-confidence they have. Their future is entirely, entirely in their control. Notice it again. They assume they have control over the when, today or tomorrow. Control over the where, such and such a town. Control over how long, we'll spend a year there. Control over the what, we're going to do some trade. And then best of all, control over the outcome. We're going to make some profit. Dollar, dollar bill, dollar, dollar bill. I mean, they're straight vibing. They are so confident in, in, in what's going to happen. And perhaps when we first read that, on the, on the surface, we sort of think, well, there's nothing untoward going on here, is there? I mean, James certainly doesn't have a problem with businesses making profit. And it doesn't seem that they're engaging in any immoral activities on the surface. Quite the opposite. In some ways, maybe we'll say, good on you. Good to show some drive, some creativity, some industrious. That's the Northern Irish work ethic we see coming through. But underneath it, James wants us to see there is something dangerous. There's a, a wickedness of attitude going on, a worldliness in their arrogance, their self-reliance. In fact, it's almost a willful ignorance, and certainly it's an exclusion of the presence and the involvement of God in their plans and in their daily lives. He's not there. Did you notice that? And they certainly don't have any space for him either. You see, James's first warning to us is that worldliness might not be that overt. It might not be that explicit. You might not even see it, obviously, from the surface, but it's clearly there in their hearts. As he says in verse number 16, as it is, your boast in your arrogance, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. And especially for those of us who come from a religious background, we know the stereotype of worldliness, and, and we can sort of organize our behavior appropriately, but real worldliness that will oppose this humility toward God that James is seeking us to, 
develop will often show itself in this sort of arrogant attitude of self-sufficiency below the surface. So we can sing, guide me, O thy great Jehovah, on a Sunday. And then we find it so easy to make our plans for Monday through Saturday as if we've left God here as we leave the pew. And again, it's our double-mindedness. God, I've got these practical affairs of my daily life to be sorted out, so to be honest, you can sit this one out. And perhaps you're not embarking on any trade missions like this one, but the rebuke is intended for all of us who are prone to act in a self-determined, independent-of-God type of fashion. Maybe it's our plans for our homes. Maybe it's our hopes for our families. Maybe it is our goals for our career or our business. I wonder, can we identify the subtle expressions of self-reliance in our own lives? Because James wants us to see that that is godly arrogance. I wonder if you noticed that James actually then points out the absurdity of this attitude. It's actually ridiculous. First, he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I mean, we, we don't know the future. That's, that's basic, isn't it? It's summer in Northern Ireland, in case you hadn't noticed. And, um, you know, before you go to the beach, you always have to check the weather forecast, don't you? And you have to check it from at least two sources. So either your app on your phone, BBC website, Uh, The Met Office, everybody has their favorite one. But even when you check that, you still bring a jumper and a coat and an umbrella because you just don't know. You have no certainty about the future. And secondly, then he asks, what is your life? Have you forgotten the frailty and brevity of human life? For you are a mist, he says, that appears for a little time and then vanishes like our breath appearing for a moment in the cold air on a frosty morning, or the steam that puffs its way out of the spout of the kettle, all fire and sound and fury, and then it's gone. Surely, if anything, in the last two years, global pandemic, war in Europe, and now a cost-of-living crisis should teach us anything, it should be the uncertainty of the future and the frailty of human life. How idiotic, knowing what we don't know, that we think we can proceed without the eternal, unchanging God in the midst of our plans. And in verse number 15, he gives us the alternative attitude. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And of course, James is not wanting us to have some sort of hollow motto, if the Lord wills, that we sort of nominally add at the end of our sentences to keep us covered. But as we consider the uncertainty of the future, the the brevity and the fragility of life, it should drive us to an attitude of humility, an expression of complete dependence on the Lord God. And I think to many of us, this can seem too basic Trivial, sometimes it can get into our thinking that it's a little quaint, but it is so fundamental to what God is doing in our lives day to day. We get so obsessed with what we consider urgent, important, the solid realities, that we forget that God is in control. We forget that the basis of Christian life is humble trust 
in the goodness and graciousness of God. But before we move on to chapter five, please don't mishear James. He's not saying let go and let God. This is not an excuse for for laziness. And so James reinforces the, the sort of central point of his whole letter in verse number 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This isn't a call to scrap our plans. In life, in business, and even in gospel ministry, we should be working hard, making plans, setting goals, but always, always evaluating our plans by the Lord's standards, by his goals, by his will. And so James says, if we know the right thing to do, do it, and make a plan to continue to do it. So what does this look like? Well, we need to be aware of the subtlety of any arrogant worldly attitude that can creep in. And that needs to be replaced by a a humility that qualifies our plans, our hopes, and expectations for the future by God's standards. And we take each day, step by step, with a conscious dependence on God's goodness. As I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't get away from the thought that surely our struggle with a commitment to prayer is a result of our self-reliance. We not, might not boast and brag like, like these merchants, but we certainly habitually act without an attempt to listen to God and ask for his wisdom. There's a, a constant war within our spirit with the world around us that we act in a way that is self-reliant. If you have fallen away from regular prayer, as an individual or as a couple, consider deeply what that says about your attitude. Men in particular. It gets awkward after you haven't prayed with your wife for a while and you've let things slip, but we have to suck it up, admit that, and say, tonight, we're going to get back to praying together each evening. So am I so arrogant that I can go through the day-to-day without taking moments to bow my head and express gratitude and dependence on God. A warning, therefore, against godly arrogance. Moving on to chapter five, verses one through six. A warning against godly arrogance as seen in self-indulgence. Again, Jim says, listen up. And this time he switches his focus to the rich and wealthy landowners in the community. And if it was implicit in our first paragraph that that this arrogance of self-reliance could be sort of fueled by middle-class comfort, then it's explicit here with this group that their, their arrogance has been built on their love for money. In fact, they're so lost in their love for money and self indulgence that they are blinded to the future judgment of God. And so James warns them, verse number one, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What an intense scene of despair as they head towards catastrophe when they face Jesus Christ as judge. And before he outlines the charges that will be held against them in verses four, five, and six, he describes the judgment that's coming in pretty graphic language. In verses two and three, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Often in biblical prophecy, the author uses the, the perfect tense to underline the certainty of what is yet a future event. So he says, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Yes, James knows if he looks at their bank account, there's still the big numbers in there. He knows they still have the deeds to the property and their homes are well stocked with luxury items. But on judgment day, he says, all of that for certain will be worthless. I mean, there's a practical point here, I think, as well, isn't there? That when you have an excess of stuff that you're hoarding, it is more liable to get wasted. That is what it all is going to end up as. So if you have many outfits and half the wardrobe doesn't get opened, certainly in the Middle Eastern heat of James's day, then that would just become fabric food for little moths. But what makes matters worse is that all of this is going on, James says, in the last days. Did you notice that at the end of verse number three? In the last days. What, what James means by this is that Jesus has come. He has established his kingdom through the saving work he has accomplished on the cross. And he promised that if he went back to heaven, then he would return. And that's what we're waiting for. And he will come again soon to judge the living and the dead. Any time now. And so James calls this the last days. These are the days where we're waiting for Jesus to return. These are days where we prepare for the eternal kingdom, not days to hoard up wealth for ourselves. It's like these guys and girls are like turkeys in December, getting excited for the extra portion of food they're getting fed. James says in verse number five, you have fattened your hearts in a day or for the day of slaughter. It's pretty graphic language because judgment day is just around the corner. And all of their stuff, it it provides no security. In fact, James again is graphic language. He says, in the same way all your stuff is gonna come to ruin, it's gonna corrode away, so too that process is gonna happen to you with fire. It's gruesome, but it's true. Anyone who treasures possessions, anyone who puts their hope in the wrong thing, then then they will be exposed and they will pay. So what do we do with this warning? Well, I mean, frequently throughout James, we have heard the echoes of the, of the voice of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus throughout this letter. And I think it's a helpful connection to, for both of these paragraphs so that we remember the, the parable that Jesus told of the rich man who built bigger barns. Because he paraded the same sort of worldliness, didn't he? He he made boastful self-reliance and plans and self-indulgence. And and, and these people sort of follow his example. They they never ask the question, given this bumper harvest, given all the resources we have, how can we be generous to others? Now, I think there's at least two reasons why why James sort of turns from the church and talks to these people. Uh, people outside the church, and why he wants us to hear this strong rebuke this morning. Well, firstly, as Shriath will pick up later, James will continue in the next paragraph to encourage the the believers who were perhaps under the employment of these wicked uh, rich men to stand firm against the injustice, that God will judge these self-indulgent men who are causing them so much suffering. 
But secondly, I think he wants to remind us of, of the seriousness of just the, what this tendency can provoke in our own hearts. As we, as we listen to these words, as we, as we listen to what will become of those who put their hope in riches, of what will become of these self-indulgent men and women, how foolish it is for us to envy their fortune, to envy their power, to envy their privilege. There was a study that was published in, in 2014 which, which calculated that the average adult is exposed to about 360 adverts per day. Um, so 360, I worked that out. If you're awake for, for 16 hours a day, then that's great, getting eight hours sleep, that's great. Um, that means that you've only been exposed to an ad every two minutes and 40 seconds. So every two minutes and 40 seconds, 360, time, 360 times a day, you have a voice saying, you know what you don't have? Uh, do you know what this new and better thing is that you really need? Do you know what would make you a little bit more happy? A little bit more satisfied? Is if you just had this. And that's the battle that, that we face with worldliness. It, it's pulling us away. It's, 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 it's alluring us away from this mindset of humility and dependence before God. Now, James doesn't command the rich to give away all their money and live in poverty, but he is concerned that the seductive appeal of it will fuel our arrogance, that we'll become worldly in our self-reliance and in our self-indulgence. As one preacher succinctly put it, money is dangerous, our hearts are deceptive, and a love for money is deadly. So let's conclude. One of the many reasons why we try to teach the Bible consecutively is so that we don't avoid the difficult passages. And certainly, as we stand on the brink of, or, or have already started into the midst of a cost of living crisis, it's hard to talk about money, and it's certainly not something I would have chosen. But we need to hear the warning of James this morning, and perhaps it is timely as we all address our personal finances and, and, and have to look within, that we hear these warnings. Firstly, a warning against godless arrogance in our boastful self-reliance. And secondly, a warning against boastful or godless arrogance and the danger of self-indulgence. We started off talking about the, the, the gap that so many of us can feel between our understanding of what God has done in the past and what will happen in the future and what he is doing now. And James has been showing us, chapter after chapter, week after week, that the gospel belongs in the nitty-gritty, in our relationships, in our workplace, in our bank statements, in our hopes, in our dreams, in our expectations, every aspect of living. And so to close out and thinking particularly of the passage we have in front of us this morning, I want to ask us just 10 questions uh, with no answers, just to think about in the quietness of our own hearts. As I said before, many of us who grew up in sort of more conservative traditions, we have a clear stereotype of what worldliness is. But so too often it's, it's left at the surface level. We don't get to the, the heart attitudes, the, the heart loyalties that James has challenged in his letter. And so we don't want to create more stereotypes. We can't give hard and fast rules, but we just want to ask these questions 
and encourage you at some point today to discuss with your spouse or your family members or a friend how might we avoid arrogance and practice more humility in our day-to-day lives. Number one, what do our plans reveal about our hearts? And do you recognize the world's values or the Lord's values in your plans for the future? Do you actively evaluate your plans by the Lord's standards and the Lord's gospel mission in this world? Are you letting the world influence what you think you need to be joyful and complete? There is a wise way to earn, spend, save, and invest money that glorifies God, but do we earn, spend, save, and invest money in a godless way? When you envisage your your future, does it basically look like the typical non-Christian at your age and stage? Number six, do we prioritize being comfortable and having nice things, or or do we have a lifestyle that prioritizes giving generously and spreading the gospel locally and globally in view of Jesus' return? Do we speak to our Heavenly Father for our daily bread as often as we check our bank balance or think about our money? Number eight, do we give thanks at each meal in our home or are we trying to teach our children to be continually thankful and daily dependent on God? Number nine, as we evaluate our current finances in the current crisis, do we include generosity both in giving and hospitality because we desire to store up treasure in heaven. How might a personal review of my bank balance reveal a double-mindedness and where the treasure of my heart lies? I don't have all the answers. Susie and I have been discussing these things the last two weeks, and I hope that it helps provoke us to have these conversations as we consider the warning of James and the message of the Word of God this morning. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are singular, wholehearted, undivided in your generosity toward us. And we thank you that you lavish on us wisdom for daily life. And we confess that we're too often like the choppy sea. We're back and forward, up and down, never constant. But we long to be stable in faith and integrity. We want to be people who hear the word and do it. We want to be people who treat others as you have treated us. We want to be men and women who so know your grace and have so experienced your grace that we reflect it back with our speech and our words. And so we pray that you may develop in us a heart and attitude of godly humility and that we may leave this place more dependent on your daily grace. So we commit this time and the work of your spirit through your word in our hearts to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.